This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, September 11th, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. If you like taking financial advice from humor writers, self-described blockhead P.J. O'Rourke has a new book for you. It's called None of My Business. P.J. Explains Money, Banking, Debt, Equity, Assets, Liabilities, and Why He's Not Rich and Neither Are You. We discussed several of these topics when we spoke last week. P.J., why am I not rich. I feel that the qu- I've sufficiently answered the question, if you're so smart, why aren't you rich? Except for the fact that I'm not rich. So well, I guess why, why, you know, why is America's savings rate so low? Why are people spending the way they are? Well, those are a number of sort of discrete questions, but let's, let's start with uh, why you're not rich. And I'm not either. One is uh, the skills you have to sell. I think those skills are absolutely excellent. I like my own skill set too, but there's always the matter of how much people will pay us for our skill set. And very few Americans acquired a skill set that is well paid these days. We failed to go to law school. We failed to go to medical school. We failed to go to dental school. And we also weren't paying attention when the mathematics got really deep and dense Uh, We failed to follow our high school math teacher way into the weeds, um, like a lot of people who have made enormous amount of money in the United States. It turns out the new economy, the post-industrial economy, turns out to be extremely math intensive. I am a guy who um, about halfway through trigonometry got hatcheted by Chief Sokotoa, (laughs) there it stopped. And uh, the financial manipulation turns out to be, besides all the computer stuff, financial manipulation and and computer nonsense turn out to be the, um, uh, the most highly paid skills on the face of the earth. So when Americans look at how the economy functions, even in a, in good times, uh, there are many people, and this pol- politicians have taken great advantage of it uh, in saying this, this economy doesn't work for everyone. This economy doesn't work for most people. Working people deserve X, Y, Z. And I have a lot of sympathy for that, especially when you see uh, vast sums of money being uh, accrued to a relatively small number of people. It's It would be natural, I think, to have that that view or at least that suspicion that the economy is structured against me. And there's truth enough in that. Um, over the course of the past, say, 60 years, our standard of living is much higher uh, than it was when I was a kid. Uh, we lead a uh, broader, freer life. Uh, we have bigger houses, much more uh, entertainment available to us. Um, the travel and vacation, the variety of food and so on, is all quite luxurious by early 1950s standards. However, on the downside of that is creating an ordinary middle-class life where you've got a decent home, decent transportation, decent education, uh, and decent opportunities for your kids. What, what the greatest generation came home from World War II wanting 
That has actually become much more expensive in chain dollars, in real dollars. One of the things I go into in the book is comparing um, middle-class life, the cost of, of being middle-class now to what it was when I was a kid in the early 1950s, when my dad made my dad made maybe 12 grand a year, which uh, was pretty good by the uh, standards of the time. And chain dollars, that's uh, something on the order of um, 100,000. $110,000 a year. It's a little hard to compare prices across long periods of time. But uh, it now probably costs something on the order of closer to half a million dollars to have the life that we had in 1953. And the two biggest uh, increases, um, are, uh, one large increase is the cost of housing. Uh, even though there was a bit of a housing shortage in the years after World War II, uh, people managed to find housing at a reasonably decent price. Uh, reasonably decent housing at reasonably decent price. It wasn't beautiful. It wasn't super luxurious, but, but it suited. Uh, they managed to find leave-it-to-beaver or slightly sub-leave-it-to-beaver sort of environments to live in. And, and they found those in safe and secure and friendly neighborhoods. The neighborhoods are gone forever. Uh, the housing prices are much higher. But the huge hit is uh, education. Education has become wildly more expensive in large part because people feel compelled to send their kids to private schools. Uh, so it's not just college education that's gone out of control in, in, in terms of its cost. But primary and secondary education are hugely expensive. I mean, say if you live here in Washington, D.C., the idea of sending your kids, even though the city has supposedly gentrified since I came here in the 80s, the idea of sending your kids to public schools in the District of Columbia is still just a no-go if you can possibly afford to do otherwise. And then there's a one more hit that has come to the middle-class world, and this is darn hard to blame on government or the economy or business or labor or immigration or anything like that, which is that everybody insists on having two middle-class lives because they get divorced, something my parents of my generation, howsoever badly they got along, just really statistically didn't do. And so you take all the increased costs of being middle class and then double them because all of a sudden you've got two families to house, two families to educate. And um, we haven't even touched on healthcare, which has also gotten much more expensive. But then again, of course, it's much better. You've estimated your uh, net worth in the 1970s at about, if I understand correctly, $31,500. Right. And uh, you've estimated your net worth today. At and, about, if I understand correctly, $31,500. Yeah, I think that's – I, I don't even really want to look into it. <laughs> well, and a lot of people don't. And you can make – you draw a comparison between yourself and somebody named Mark Zuckerberg who uh, was worth when you were younger uh, in the low single digits according to your estimation. Yeah, we used three. And now uh, it's two hundred trillion dollars, or yeah, something. Or something. Yeah. Something. I, I think. What, what is this? A sufficiently is, large number. Yeah. He's lost uh, some money, and we should feel very. He's down to like sixty-four billion. Or we something, should feel yeah. very bad for him oh, for yeah. having to My suffer that bleeds. fate. Yeah. 
Um, but you know, when in, in terms of middle class lifestyles, um, uh, there's a popular question. I, I think it was like, would you rather make a hundred thousand dollars and everyone around you makes fifty thousand dollars, or would you rather make a hundred thousand uh, dollars, or would you rather make two hundred thousand dollars and everyone around you makes four hundred thousand dollars? Well, you know, that isn't as irrational a question as it sounds like it is. I mean, obviously, the correct answer is that you you're better off making twice the amount of money, uh, even if comparatively you're you're worse off. And yet, consider the kind of society that you're you'd be living in. Say, if you get to make a hundred thousand dollars, and we'll, it, we'll, instead of saying that the other people, everybody else makes fifty thousand dollars, let's say the median is fifty thousand dollars, and you're making a hundred thousand dollars, you're a Psychologically speaking, you're a big fish in a, in a small pond. Uh, whereas if the median is 400,000 and you're only making 200,000, you are psychologically, you feel that you're a failure. Even if you're, even if you know better, even if you're doing what you really want and you've got plenty of money to, to live on, you psychologically feel that you're a failure. And there's a bit of that going on in the, uh, in the income disparity. Uh, a wise person ignores income disparity. But then there, besides just the psychological factor to that, there is the kind of society that you would live in if the median were 50,000 or if the median were 400,000. And all of a sudden, you would be surrounded by all sorts of nonsense. Say you're in the, you make 200,000 and you're in a median society of 400,000. All of a sudden, you're surrounded by all sorts of luxurious nonsense that you aren't capable of uh, participating in. And some of it's not nonsense. Uh, given a, a 400 median, 200 income situation, you're not going to be able to set, afford to send your kids to the best schools because there's so many people who are richer than you are. In a 100,000 income, 50,000 median, uh, you are you're you're in the elite, and you're going to be able to send your kids to the best possible schools. And I think that my dad, with some justification, felt that he could send his kids to the best um, schools. And the best schools in those days, uh, the, the way you went to the best school was that you moved into a neighborhood that had a good school and went to the public schools. That option really isn't open to many many Americans anymore because of the disastrous failure of our public education system. So you, you can see what's bugging people. In, uh, in terms of trying to secure that middle-class lifestyle, housing uh, is one of, one of the big expenses that you've pointed to. Um, you know, how has government dealt with that? It, you know, it used, it, it's, it's, I'm, I'm an extremely young person, uh, and I don't feel any particular desire to buy a house, but I do feel the pressure from friends and uh, my family and the government to say, hey, you've got to buy a house, buddy. Well, you want someplace decent to live, whether you own it or rent it or whatever. And if you rent it, you want some, um, you want some security of price stability. So what you're going to do is either sign some sort of long-term lease, which is a kind of ownership. I mean, you know, there in, in many times in history, in many places around the world, there's nothing unusual about a 50-year lease or a 100-year lease, and you could sell that lease so that you had a sort of ownership stake in what you were renting. But um, yeah, I mean, you want some someplace nice to live, 
And what the government has done uh, over the past 50 years has been wrong on almost every front. They built ghettos uh, in an effort to improve low-income housing. Government deliberately built cheap places for poor people to live. And then instead of creating neighborhoods in, in which poor people could live in the traditional sort of traditional slum, they created vertical slums with very little social interaction and it, which quickly turned into behavioral sinks. They destroyed old neighborhoods and, and built unlivable new neighborhoods. stack a is what they call it in Britain. Uh, so th the government did that wrong. They guaranteed all sorts of mortgages to um, moderate income people and especially veterans. But built into those uh, mortgage agreements was a, basically a tacit agreement with the banks that the government did not want to finance any sort of homes that weren't conventional. If you want to know where the cookie-cutter neighborhoods uh, that, that grew up after World War II and that are now turning into suburban slums of their own – where they came from was the government's unwillingness to underwrite mortgages for anything that was even vaguely creative in the way of housing. Um, there, there's a kind of house, and most of us grew up in one, that was called banker traditional. And the banks and the government did not want to underwrite anything that was even moderately good looking. It's one of the reasons that the post-World War II it's almost like the greatest generation came home from the war determined to make the world as ugly as the war was, uh, not as ruined and broken and dangerous as the war was, but as uh, they, they came home determined to destroy local beauty. Uh, zoning regulations, um, uh, one of the things the government did wrong was, of course, was not follow through on its tacit civil rights promises of the 30s and of the war years. So that uh, a, a lot of people, um, especially black people, were continued to be ghettoized uh, in a period of rising expectations. I think that led to an increase between that and, 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 and bad housing policies definitely led to an increase in crime. And that increase in crime drove middle class people out of our cities, hollowed out our cities. And then the suburbs proceeded to zone themselves in a little surrounding towns or around our big cities, proceeded to zone themselves so that poor people could not possibly live there. No trailers, no duplexes, no apartment buildings, no small lots, no, no modest little houses like Elvis Presley grew up in were to be allowed. And, you know, it's not all government policy is federal policy. There are, there are local government policies. Especially are, for housing. Especially for housing. And then, you know, the poverty programs of the 1960s uh, created all sorts of poor people who not only were poor but were uh, being paid by the government to stay poor essentially. I mean we – we didn't so much uh, go to war against poverty in, in the 1960s as we did decide to subsidize it. And so you created a huge dependency problem with this too. There are a lot, a lot of young people uh, – I read this in the New York Times uh, magazine recently who have embraced what's called the FIRE movement, financially independent, retire early. <laughs> that, it, that is, they live yeah. a, a very – Mod as modest a lifestyle as they can afford to while uh, throwing every 
extra dollar they possibly can at the market and usually broad market index funds in hopes of hitting the so-called FU number and then retiring, uh, living essentially that same modest life. Oh, boy. Young people, kids today, who gets them? Whatever happened to sha na 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 live for today of, of my generation? <laughs> this just isn't going to work. You know, uh, the idea of throwing all your money into an index fund, that's fine in a bull market. Uh, this bull market is getting old, getting tired. There's going to be something that follows this bull market, and it's probably going to be a bear market. Uh, you know, saving up is and, and being financially responsible is very good. But, you know, kids, kids, have you ever looked at what retirement life is like? This is what you want for yourself? Why not go out there and have some fun, take some risks? And, you know, even even, even the most conservative people of prior generations have piled up a certain amount of debt in, in terms of, um, of mortgage payments and so on. And it's basically um, you're betting that you will rise up the economic ladder. And you're also betting that the assets that you have mortgaged will increase in value. So you uh, refer to yourself in this book as a blockhead and oh, uh, yes. in, in reference to the blockchain and attempting to deal with it. I've watched a lot of uh, people on uh, financial talk shows and almost universe, you can you can draw a line down the middle if you lined all these people up by age. Uh, in terms of their comments about blockchain and uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies in general. And the older a uh, commentator is, the less likely they are to have uh, any interest in it. I, I remember John Bogle, who's somebody I respect a great deal, saying essentially, it's crazy. Yeah, I'm 70, and so I go with the it's crazy uh, uh, department. I think it is crazy within the term of – I have no idea what it will be like 50 years from now, but within the term of my lifespan, I think that it probably is crazy. Um, you shouldn't ever invest invest in anything you don't understand. And I think I can count the people I know who understand the blockchain well enough. Uh, uh, I can count on one hand, and they are leery about it. Uh, I have a, fr a friend, a commodities trader friend in Chicago who did make some money uh, uh, with cryptocurrency. He sort of foresaw the, uh, 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 the rise in Bitcoin. He got in. He got out. He made – I don't know whatever he made. You know, He made his, his small pile on that. But uh, he got out at about the time of where Bitcoin was trading and where, where it is about today, which is like middle 6,000, something like that. You are the editor-in-chief of a magazine, American Consequences. Tell me about that. Yeah. Uh, American Consequences is, uh, uh, is a free web magazine. And uh, basically, uh, uh, we are, are sponsored. We're not run by, but we're sponsored by uh, a, a group in Baltimore called Stansbury Research. And Stansbury Research is investment newsletters is what they do for, for, for a business. Some of the uh, uh, investment newsletters that Stansbury does are straightforward enough for me to understand. Some have to do with like trading strategies that are a little above my head, but uh, I've never found them giving any, you know, bad advice or any evil advice or, you know, I think they're a really solid firm. And um, they wanted something, you know, not like I say, it's not, not it's sponsored by them. It's not, uh, it's not run uh, uh, by them. And they just wanted something out there that discussed the big issues of political economics and finance. And Where have we seen inflation in recent years? 
And, um, you know, I, I was not uh, aware of, of money or anything else with the last time the United States had serious inflation. Do you see that as, as something on the horizon? And uh, inflation strikes me as incredibly immoral. Yes. Um, but beyond that, uh, I think a lot of people have uh, an adult life in which it hasn't been an issue. Yeah, that's kind of amazing to me uh, who was, you know, I was in my uh, uh, late 20s and early 30s during the Carter years. And so I saw inflation up close and, and, and it, it does incredible wreckage to society. Um, it, it is toughest on the poorest people um, uh, whose wages uh, and benefits do not keep up with, with rate of inflation. It's also very hard on people on fixed income, so it's hard, uh, hard, hardest on both the poor at one end and the old at the other. So exactly the people that, that, that society should most want to protect are most harmed by inflation. And it's hard to imagine that the amount of, 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 of printing of money that we have done uh, will not lead to some sort of inflationary episode. Uh, the United States is lucky in that um, um, the, the U.S. dollar is a world reserve currency, but that doesn't mean that it's immune uh, um, to to radical devaluation. I mean, we, we we saw that back in the 1970s. It's something to always keep an eye on, and um, um, lest we go the way of Venezuela. The president of the United States has not made use of. Uh, this little room off to the side of the Oval Office in which tariffs are effectively controlled uh, for a very long time. And for decades, Congress has given to the president the power to have some direct control with respect to trade. We have a president in the White House who, for the first time in a long time, has really, really begun to make use of turning these old wheels and pulling these old levers to uh, change uh, how the United States and people in the United States are able to trade with the world. Um, it's really hard to pin down where those effects are, and uh, but it it is well established that it's bad for the overall economy. It's bad for people. Um, where do you think this ends? That I really don't know. I, I mean, the, the point you bring up is that there's been absolutely no coherent leadership on this, and there's very poor understanding of, of, of the basics of trade everywhere in our government, both in, in the legislative and, and, and the administrative branch, and for all I know in the judicial too. We all know that free trade overall works very well uh, uh, to, to increase uh, uh, economic well-being in general. And there are always exceptions to that. Uh, there'll be sectors of the economy that will always be harmed by free trade. But basically, we've been in a free trade experiment for since the 1980s. And since the 1980s, the number of people around the world living in abject poverty, living on a dollar a day or less, has been cut in half. And that is a direct result of free trade reforms. Now, um, have some of these trade deals been uh, unfair, lopsided, uh, 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 distorted by politics? Uh, doubtless, uh, they have. Uh, are there some adjustments that should be made to some of these fair trade deals? Probably there are. But I 
trust neither our president nor our Congress uh, to having any fundamental understanding of economics at all, let alone any understanding of the details and complexities of, of, of trade policy. If Donald Trump acting scary has gotten the attention of people around the world who are not holding up their end of the fair trade deal, and then there is a fair amount of that. I mean, China will say, oh, we don't have any tariffs against this, that, or the other thing, but then they will impose regulations that essentially keep that product from being sold in China. Uh, the European Union does the same sort of thing. I'm sure Canada and Mexico do too. Um, if, if, if President Trump's scary behavior makes them think twice about doing this kind of stuff, that's all well and good, but is it a pretty high price to pay for him being so frightening? And it seems like a weird long-term strategy. In the long term, it's disastrous. I mean, long term, um, a return to mercantilism and a return to protectionism long-term and globally is, is, is just a recipe for, at best, economic stasis. At worst, another Great Depression. P.J. O'Rourke is a Mencken Research Fellow at the Cato Institute. He is author of the new book, None of My Business. You can subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes, Google Podcasts. And when you think about it, say, Alexa, play the Cato Daily Podcast. And you can follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 